You're never done learning what I'm gonna talk about you, uh, with you today. And it centers around the, um, the love of the Father. But I want, I'm actually not going to focus on the word love today. I'm gonna take it to a, a level that I know the Father wants us to get to, and that is the delight of the Father in his children. It's more than just a theological love. It is a relational delight that the Father has with his children. And I'll risk this. Most of the people in this room and those that will listen to it later struggle with the idea that God could ever delight in them. They're much more comfortable thinking, he loves me. But if we just nudge a little bit and say, yeah, but do you think he likes you? Do you think he delights in you? They want to retreat into a theological cave because they're afraid to say, yeah, he likes me. He delights in me. Because we've been taught by, I'm going to try to read this in a minute, but I'm already getting stirred. We've been taught in Bible Belt religiosity that the further we distance ourselves from holy God and keep him at a theological, orthodox arm's length to admire him, but we don't consider our faith a personal contact sport. We are much more comfortable talking about him, even talking to him. And there are times where he just says, shh, I want to hug on you. I want to love on you. I want you to know how much I delight in you. And there are innumerable mountains, walls, and lies. That's why we sang about that this morning, that he has to break down, tear down, and shine light into to get us to that place. You won't need to open your Bible because I'm not going to give you enough time to find the book of Zephaniah chapter 3, but you can look up on the screen. Anybody do their weekly devotions in Zephaniah this week? That's not a Bible (laughs) book that we are usually in casually, but it literally has one of the most profound statements of God concerning his people, God's love and delight in his people that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. And I'm just going to read this one verse. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult, and we're going to talk about what that word means. He will exult over you with loud singing. So, Father, I just ask you right now, There just has to be faith in the room, Lord, to believe this. Let the level of confidence in your heart be stronger than every other thing that resists this truth in the heart of your children, Lord. All of those that have been bruised and slashed and wounded, even by father figures on earth, Lord, take all of that mess out of the way. Clear a path straight towards your children. And just let them know you're coming after them in love and you're not going to stop. And I pray, Lord, for all who've been running, all who've been keeping up the frenetic pace instead of being still and knowing that you're God, I just pray they'd run out of that energy today. And that when they get still and get stopped by the Holy Spirit this morning, they'll dare to believe that you delight in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is and this isn't a sermon. I don't feel like preaching a sermon this morning. I do do want to make sure that what I say is rooted in the verse that I just read. But so many of us in this room have been theologically trained that every sermon needs to have these components to it. We want the historical context. We want the biblical context. We want to make sure we differentiate between interpretation and application. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, you just need to be disappointed today because I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to talk to you about my Abba's heart. And I'm going to weave in some of what he's done in my life. But more importantly, I really want you to reflect on what he's done in your life and not to stop in history, but to welcome all of that from the present moment to continue into the future with a greater awareness in your heart that he's for you, that that he's actually for you. And so in this one verse, there's just four statements that I believe God is speaking not only in the verse to ancient Israel through the prophet Zephaniah, but I actually think he's talking to us today uh, about these very things. And the first one is just very simple. And in the midst of an insanely 
obnoxious, noisy world that you're living in, I, I think he wants you just to stop, slow down, and hear him say this. I am your God. I am your God. It opens up with this four-word phrase in the English, the Lord your God. That's who is going to be the subject of everything we're going to talk about in this passage. The Lord your God. It is his proper name. It is the name in the Hebrew, Yahweh. Um, long time ago, that, that Yahweh was replaced with the more familiar in our day and age of Jehovah. But Yahweh is the personal name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yahweh is his personal name. And so right off the bat, I'm just going to, to prime you a little bit. And I want us to remember that God is not simply a concept out there. He's not simply the greatest idea that man has ever received. He, he doesn't stand for something. But the God is a personal being, unlike any other being, with no beginning, no end, pre-existing, all that has ever existed. But he is a real being, a rational being, a thinking being, a feeling being, a relating being. He is not a, a, just a God. He's not a set of rules. He's not a stone monument in the clouds. But he is a creator, he is a father, he is a king, he is a lover, he is a shepherd, he is a prince, he is a healer. He is all of these things and more. And yet he wants us to remember from time to time that beyond the English word God, he has a name. It speaks of who he has always been before there was ever a single voice in existence to worship him. He has said, I am Yahweh. It is the name of relationship, the name of his covenant. He presents himself in covenant, one who can be trusted, one who can be honored, one who can be believed, and one who has never, ever, not one time, broken one of his promises. There have been times where we have made had wrong ideas about what he should and shouldn't do, but I'm going to tell you, he has a perfect track record. Four quadrillion out of four quadrillion times and more, he's hit it perfectly on the head. He's never missed. He's never fumbled. He's never said oops. He's never bobbled anything. And he presents himself to you and I who know much in our lives about wounding and abandonment and frustration and betrayal. And you and I that are susceptible to doubts and susceptible to self-preservation, protecting ourselves and, and, and not wanting to give ourselves fully to anything lest we meet the slice of disappointment again in our life. But he says, no, I am Yahweh and I am the God of relationship. That is my name. He also it, it says that it is the name of his covenant. You know, he makes covenants. He entered into a covenant with Adam. He entered into a covenant with Noah. He entered into a covenant with Abraham. He entered into a covenant with Moses. He entered into a covenant with David. He enters into covenant. God says, I want my people to know that I put myself to you. I put myself, my name, my glory, my, my own testimony. I put it on the line with you. Test me and see whether or not I will bring to pass what I have assigned to my name. And he's the God of covenant. And you and I are, are living in the pinnacle of all covenants, the new covenant, the covenant of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that moment that there was a, a, a decision of faith in you, where you recognize that as a sinner, yes, a sinner, that you needed one thing more than you needed anything else. You needed a savior, a rescuer, a redeemer. You needed a champion. You needed a, for lack of a better phrase, we'll point it out here in a moment. You needed somebody heroic to come in and do for you with, with, with that thing that nobody else could do. And so in, in a moment of faith, you recognize that Jesus Christ had provided the access to God the Father. You recognize that through the sacrifice of Jesus' blood, you recognize that he was the sacrifice that the Father sent on your behalf. And you said, yes, Lord Jesus, I trust that your blood has paid comprehensively for my sin. For all that I've done, for all that I might do now, and all those things I might ever do in the future, I lay my humbled soul before you, and I say, Jesus, let your covenant be over me. You said you would save the one who calls out to you, and I enter into that covenant by faith. And from that moment, you are in covenant with God. Now, the beauty is this. You, the only thing that you brought to the salvation equation was the sin that made it necessary. And the only thing that your salvation relies upon is that faith in Jesus Christ. 
And yet we are living in an overly demanding religious culture that constantly assails us through corridors of guilt, through, through open windows of shame and taunts of comparison and the threatenings of it's never enough, it's never enough, it's never enough. That is the, the mantra of religion telling you you've got to do for God, you've got to do for God, you've got to do for God, and you've got to do for God. And yet not one of those systems of religion has ever come up with a measurable moment that says, okay, now you've done enough. Because religion is never satisfied. And so God doesn't call us to religion. He calls us to himself and he says, I took care of everything. Your part is to look to me and believe and remain believing. See, brothers and sisters, uh, this morning, two weeks ago, as I was just saying, Lord, we have spent weeks crossing over Jordan, battling the Canaanites, establishing monuments, claiming territory, dealing with our fickle hearts. And Lord, there's been so much in these weeks talking about our responsibility. I just sent you, Father, leading us into a moment of liberty and tell us how, how you work with us. And I just heard the Father said, make sure you tell them often just how much I delight in them. Religion will never tell you how much he delights in you. The only way you can ever have a shred of hope that God delights in you in religion is that if you're doing more and doing it more often. And so we have a bunch of exhausted people scrambling around to earn what God has already freely given. And so when we're looking at this, he's saying, no, why don't you rest in my covenant? Why don't you trust that everything you do for me, you can do motivated by love, but it'll never change the way I feel about you. Whether you're, you're executing on a high level or very poorly, I'm going to tell you, I love you. You're mine. So going down further into this, he says, not only I'm your God, but that's easier to receive than probably this next level. I am your companion. He says, I am Yahweh Elohim in your midst. Now, just pause there. I know I'm parsing out one verse, but this is a verse that needs to be unpacked like this because if we're not careful, we'll read past it and we'll say, oh, that was nice, and then we'll go straight into verse number 18, then we'll finish out the book of Zephaniah, and God's still saying, wait a minute, I wanted you to stop on verse 17 so I could love on you there for a little bit. And we're saying, oh, no, Lord, we really like to get to the next book and the next book, and then we'll done with the Old Testament, and then we'll get into the New Testament. God just says, time out. I want you to just stop and I'm going to keep saying it until you hear it and believe it. I love you and I delight in you. I love you and I delight in you. I love you and I delight in you. And I am right there in your midst. See, the father originally speaking through Zephaniah to Israel and if you have time later, read the first couple of chapters and into chapter three of the book of Zephaniah and it's not all happy talk. This isn't some oily, pat you on the head, rah, 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 shish, kumba, make you feel better message. Because the first couple of chapters of Zephaniah, God is being very stark and very real with Israel. But he also spends the beginning of chapter number three telling them, you've got some rascals in your midst. You've got some proud people in your midst. You've got some oppressive people in your midst. You've got some people that I can't smile upon right now. And I'm going to take care of all of that. And you that survive as my remnant, this message is for you. You belong to me. I love you. I delight in you. See, brothers and sisters, not everything going on in your life is going to support the emotional confidence that God delights in you. Not everything you see happening reassures you, God really loves me. Not, not everything, right? I mean, we're going to be real about this because otherwise it just becomes wax fruit sitting in a plastic bowl. I, 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 I want you to know that all the things going on around you may actually try to come against your confidence that God delights you and is for you. Because how many of us can say just easily and glibly, oh, God delights in me when the doctors just told us that the diagnosis is really critical? That, that assaults the mind. It assaults the confidence. When a spouse or a loved one is taken from us, either through abandonment or divorce or betrayal or even death, and we feel that hollow, empty place, and, and, and words like this can, can be hard to receive. What do you mean he delights in me? Do you know what I'm going through right now? And so they're assaulted. But the Lord wants you to know that in the midst of all of these things going on around you, he says, I'm actually centered within you. 
That's literally what the Greek, excuse me, the Hebrew word means when it says, I am in your midst. And so three ways that he comes to you very quickly. First of all, he comes to us in grace. And grace is for those who are afflicted and weak and broken and guilty and hurting. Strong, self-contained, self-sufficient, self-standing people, they don't need grace. They need conviction, but they don't need grace. And so when the Lord is coming, he says, I come to you in grace. I am your God. I sat in church for years as a young person. I wasn't born again until I was 24. And I sat for, for years. My, my parents took us regularly when I was small. When my parents split up, I went to church with a neighbor. And I can tell you this, and it's through no fault of the churches that I went to, is that I sat in these services and it meant nothing to me. The words meant nothing to me. I understood the terminology. I could even, um, you know, verbalize some of it on my own. I knew how to use the parts of Christianity, but it meant nothing to me. It wasn't real. It never connected. The sermons were boring, all of them, all of them. The songs were meaningless, all of them. I mean, I remember one time being nine years old, and at my church, you took communion every Sunday. It was very integrated and into where you were supposedly standing with God. And I remember they brought the tray by me, and the usher was standing there, and I would not take the cracker, and I would not drink the cup. And he was a stern-looking gentleman. I was a kid. He's holding it out, and I knew he wanted me to do it. I finally just looked at him and said, I'm not hungry. <laughs> it's a pitiful understanding about what it's not a snack, Jeff. It's the Lord's Supper. But the point being is none of it was ever internalized. Now listen, friends, I want you to know that even as a believer, as one who preached the gospel, I sat in more services than I would like to number where none of it was connecting. And the main reason was is because I naturally assumed these things to be true, but I felt like they applied to everybody but me. I felt like they were for the other guy, the other lady. I would see people get worked up and they would do, and this is even going back to my independent Baptist days. People would stand on the pews and shout. Y'all think charismatic churches are crazy. Some of those independent Baptist churches were wild, man. They would be standing. I saw a guy stand on a pulpit one time, standing on the pulpit. And, and I, I brought my Presbyterian dad. To, right after I got saved, I got my dad to come to church with me. He never thought I'd get real with God. So I thought, well, I'm going to get my dad into church. My dad's got a Presbyterian background. And we were sitting in a missions conference and my dad was seated right next, you talk about God's sovereignty, right next to the loudest missionary ever on planet earth. And the missionary in the service, not preaching it, just sitting there next to my Presbyterian dad, stood up on the pew next to my dad and was screaming at the top of his lungs with the Bible. And I thought to myself, these people are worked up about something, but I don't get it. I, I got my dad, he was looking a little terrified in that moment, but what am I trying to say? Listen, when he's in the midst, let's just don't acknowledge his omnipresence. The Lord knows my heart when I say this. His omnipresence is not enough. I want his presiding presence. I want his intimate presence. I don't want him to be in the room and us not be talking, us not be embracing. I don't want to know that he is willing to move and is moving and connecting with anybody who wants to connect with, and I'm having to watch others connect with him, and there's something absent in my heart. I've been there before, but he's the God of all grace, and so in times like that, in our, whether it's our unbelief or our sin or our weakness or our fear or our shame and even our brokenness, sometimes it's our disobedience. It's often in our emptiness and our dryness when we really just don't feel like we have anything that he wants. And so we're not assuming that we'd ever have contact with God because after all, I'm dry, I'm empty, I'm broken, I'm afraid, I'm skeptical. And you just, you list all of you out there. And I say this in tenderness, it's not about you. We're talking about him this morning. He says, I am in your midst. And so he comes to us not only in grace, but he comes to us in power. It's not only that I am your God, it is I am your God. I am Yahweh Elohim. I am the God, by the way, that word God is the, where you first meet him in Genesis chapter 1, in the power of creation, making all things according to his eternal counsel, that the one who created all things, the one on his holy, unassailable throne, 
the one who holds time in his hands, the one who will oversee the bowing of every demonic knee and the confession of every demonic tongue. I cannot wait. Amy and I were talking about that yesterday riding around, and I cannot wait for that moment where every single demon, I can't see them now, but there are demons that'll come after you and do come after you that come after me, and they do come after me, and there is going to come a time where the veil will be taken away, and you will literally, as a child of God, be able to watch the particular demon or demons that came after you to ruin you, to kill you, to steal from you, to destroy you. You will be standing in Christ, ruling and reigning with him, and you will see that demon bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord right before he's cast into the lake of fire. You'll see that. And, and, and friends, I, I can't wait for that day to occur, but that's, that's not a future God. That's the God who's with us now. He's in the present now. So when all of this stuff comes at us, he wants us to know that he comes to us in power. I don't want to sing about his power and not live in it. I don't want to preach about his power and not experience it. I'm sick of theology being the stop sign. We got to blast through that stop sign and move in. Not only, we never lose good theology, but listen, God gave us what to believe so we could live it. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, not theology, but acts. Activity, movement, intersection with this holy God who loves you and he's powerful. So Jeff... How does that flesh out? What does that mean? I think that's the point. You need to press into that. What kind of power is available to you as a beloved child of God in whom he delights that we sing about, we listen to people preach about it, we preach about it ourselves, we read books on it, but we never live in it. Brothers and sisters, I think this is part of the, the unused aspect of the relationship that God's given us. We love him with our minds. Love the Lord your God with all of your mind, heart, soul, and strength. We love him with our minds. We think rightly. But I'm not so sure that with the body, with the soul, with the strength, that we've pressed into really yielding all of that to him. And so he comes to us demonstrably. Don't miss this. He's your God. He's your God. But he's also your God who's in the midst of you. This is by faith. Lord, give faith right now to believe this. Faith to everyone, Lord, to believe this. He's in the midst. It's a Hebrew word that that means he is near. It also means he's centralized. It it describes in, in certain places the innards, and we would know that as the heart. And so the Lord is not only above us, he's not only supporting us from underneath, he not only has our back, he not only goes before us, He has so prioritized his relationship with us that he says, I'm just going to get right in the middle of you. I'm going to be with you by being in you. Now, I don't know how to help every individual process this, but I'm going to tell you, we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Because aren't you sometimes aware of all the stuff in you that shouldn't be in you? Okay, well, let me just theoretically, maybe it's for the people watching on live stream. I'm surely not for anybody here. But in case you've ever been aware of any garbage in you. And you know how aware we are of that? Man, I'm I'm wrestling through bitterness today. Man, I'm dealing with lust today. Man, I've got an angry attitude today or I'm depressed today. And we, man, we acknowledge that bad stuff within us easily. We've been trained in our flesh to acknowledge what's messed up within us. And yet when, when the truth comes and the Lord says, yeah, I'm actually in here in power. I'm in the midst of you. And when you're ready to cooperate, I can, I can evict all of this stuff out of you. There's a word for that in theological terms and in Christian circles. It's called deliverance. You say, Jeff, what do I need deliverance from? You. Amen. You need to be delivered from you. I need to be delivered from me. And it doesn't just happen on, you know, a Tuesday at 4 p.m. and then you're fine the rest of your life. There's a constant stream of junk trying to get in us. And when we crack the window or we open the door and some of that stuff gets in, the Lord says, I want you to remember that me, the God of all power, the creator, the redeemer, the shepherd, the great physician, the healer, the teacher, the comforter, I am in you and I will gladly evict all this nasty out of you. And so we need to retrain the way we think and stop bemoaning all that's wrong with us. Because I know that you believe this, but we, we don't flesh it out enough. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That means there's nothing that can get in that he can't get out of you. So you're not a victim. 
You're, you're not somebody's doormat that you're just waiting for the next round of feet to be wiped off on you, but that you have the, the, your God in the midst. And I will just say this before moving on because I haven't even gotten to the main part yet. And by the way, put up your watch. Stop looking at your watch. I know what time it is. Some of you are like, come on, man. There's no kickoff today. No kickoff. He says, I'm your, your companion. I'm in the middle, collectively, church. I think we can say this and make application to a local body of believers. You're not being pompous when you say the Lord is here. The Lord is at Newbridge. The Lord is in the midst at Newbridge. Papa is working. The Son of God is being lifted up. People are being drawn to him. The Holy Spirit is taking access to every place he's invited to move and to work. And the greater we open the entrance, the greater we will experience the presence and the filling of him in the midst. It will happen. And so part of this, by the way, is by faith. I was telling somebody a little bit earlier that, uh, matter of fact, um, it was a man I just met here today. He's here for the first time. He's been watching us on live stream. And he said he watched last week and that the Lord ministered to him so much through the live stream that he he just wanted to come and and be with us today. And I told him, I just confessed this. I said, last Sunday was one of the rare Sundays, maybe it happens maybe twice a year, where I did not want to be in the building. I did not want to be in the building. You say, that's terrible. Yeah, I'm the pastor, and I did not want to be in the building. But I came, not because I felt it, but because I know the Lord's here. And I didn't want to subjugate his work, his presence, and his availability to my sense of it in the moment. So what did I do? I came, and the Holy Spirit saw fit to do exactly what I'm saying. He was tender. He moved to me in my brokenness. He began, when I was up here telling you over and over again, right before I preached last week, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. I knew the Lord was ministering to that people, but do you know why I broke up in the middle of that? Because he was ministering that to me. See, friends, it's that sense of it. I, I don't want you to live your life theologically. And I know that sounds terrible, but what I'm saying is I don't want you to live your life merely in theological uh, realms. I want us to believe rightly, and we will. We are founded on the word here. We believe in the Bible. Drive some of you nuts how much we live, live and, and preach and teach and use the Bible around here. But, but we're going to stay biblical, but we're not going to stay only biblical. And the Father, his mission, he didn't send Jesus to die so that over, you know, in, in about 1,300 years, we could have the compiled word of God in accessible language and we could just read a book about him the rest of our life. It's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't can't come to secure copyrights on the Bible so we'd all have a copy. Amen. He came that you could read and learn him, and then as you read and learn him objectively, and he describes who he is, you hunger for him. And then in addition to reading him, you get to be with him. Amen. And that's my desire for all of us. You say, well, Jeff, who cares about your desire? Well, you may not care about mine, but I hope you'll care about this because it's about to get really thick in here on this statement. He says, I am your companion, I am your God, and I am your rest. He says, I am, a, I am the Lord your God in the midst of you, and I'm a mighty one. I'm a mighty one. <laughs> I'm praying quietly here for a moment because I know what I'm about to say, and I'm just asking God for grace on it. <laughs> we're, we're living in a skim milk generation. Y'all like skim milk? It just looks like really white water to me. Tastes like it. I don't like skim milk. I, I like, well, you know what I like good. And I, like, <laughs> I like grade A red cap Mayfield. I, I like that stuff comes out thick. Looks like a colloid. That's what they call it, a colloid. I passed fifth grade science, but it's a co- I, I don't like it all watered down, but we live in that culture. We live in everything. They're trying to drain the substance out of everything. I am actually on a, I'm seeing a dietitian. I'm trying to lose some. I confess that before you. Pray for me because I found out what their agenda is. They say, we're going to get you skinny by removing all flavor from your life. Because <laughs> apparently you can't gain weight eating flavorless food. One of the things that I think is happening in the church is we're buying into this reductionism. 
We're trying to declaw the lion of the tribe of Judah. We're trying, to, we're trying to tame him. We're trying to domesticate the God of the Bible. We're trying to put him on a Bible belt leash and walk him around. And he's purring all the time. He's just, oh, he's so sweet. Look at him, stroke his head. He's, he's a lion, but just stroke his head. All he does is purr. Now, friends, I want to tell you something. He's gentle and he's good and he delights in you. But let's not remove from a, just a valid memory the reality that when you mess with God you lose. And when you mess with God's people, you're going to lose. Amen. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to pick a fight. It's done been picked. I'm trying to tell you as one who is a child of God that stop in moving in your mind in this. I think politeness in the church is now usurping confidence. I think that we are so polite that we're, we're moving into this almost apologetic position anytime we come across Bible and truth where there's warfare or God shredding his enemies or God dealing with people in a way that is swift and just. But friends, the beauty of it is this, as his child, I mean, he's our father. We don't have a wimpy daddy. We don't have a daddy who sticks his hand in his pockets and shuffles his, his feet and is a piece at, all, at any price kind of papa. That's not the father we have in heaven. Look with me. When he says, I am a mighty one, I'm going to give you some breakdown of what that word means and how it's used in the Old Testament. First of all, he's telling you to rest because your God is a warrior. God is a warrior. Come on, this is red meat stuff here. This word translated in Zephaniah 3.17 as a mighty one, is used nine times in the book of Joshua and Judges. Those two books are central to warfare and learning about warfare in the kingdom. They're a picture of what warfare, spiritual warfare looks like in our day and age. But it's used over nine times, this one mighty one, to describe various men of valor. These are individuals who are seen in the book of Joshua and Judges as expert in fighting battles. They actually win battles that not only should they not be fighting, they should never win, but they both fight and win them. And so what God wants you to remember is in the midst of everything, he's in the midst of you and he is a warrior. And therefore, my friend, you still can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So there isn't a battle that you have to run from when the Lord allows it to come to your front doorstep. And by the way, even stronger than that, there are some battles you should start. See, there it is. There's that, oh, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on now. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Well, go and learn what that means because it doesn't mean never fight. Friends, we are in a war. You don't win a war by playing defense all the time. You don't advance the kingdom in reverse. Yeah, listen, we are not all equipped with a rearview mirror and we're supposed to be looking at life like this through a rearview mirror. You're supposed to move forward and that warrior inside of you says, I'm going to fight for you. This is particularly helpful when you don't have the fight within you yourself where you just don't feel like you've got it. You can't do another day. You can't face another situation. You can't endure that loss any longer. You can't take that pain anymore. And yet the warrior in you rises up and he says, how about we just do today and I'll do it. If you'll just say yes, I will do it. And at the sunset today, you'll know that we've done it together. Amen. And so you persevere and you endure and you win. I pray that there, I don't think we're going to have a choice in a, if, if the Lord tarries is coming. I think within a decade, the church will have to, out of necessity, get reacquainted with what it means to know the Lord as a warrior and a mighty one. The devil is not de-escalating. He is not saying, let's take it easy on the poor church. I'm going to tell you something. If not for the grace and the work of God right now, the devil would swallow up the church if it was possible. And at every moment he sees, and by the way, the church isn't just something out there. You're the church. I'm the church. We are the church. And so he is strategic and he comes against us. And you're not imagining the fact when your life is getting assaulted, when ca catastrophe and things come to you, not, maybe not all of the time, but much of the time, it's because there's an assignment against your life. And if you're not careful, you'll say, oh, the best thing that could happen to me is if Jesus would just come get me out of this thing. Well, he's going to one day. Relax. He's going to. But until then, he's left you here to fight for his glory, to, to make his name famous in the midst of your battle because he's a warrior and he still knows how to fight and to win. And also, he's, uh, you can rest in this, that God is your champion. 
That's a word, an old English word that doesn't mean much to us today. When we see champion, it's, it's simply the guy or the team that prevailed at the end of the season. And that's part of it. But in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse number 51, the David, David and Goliath passage, Goliath is referred to as the champion of the Philistines. And it's the same word translated mighty one here referring to God. What does that mean? It means that as Goliath was the greatest representative and the one to fight on behalf of all of the Philistines, God describes himself as, I am the one who will fight on behalf of you. When I win, my children win, and I always win. And so when you think about Jesus Christ being our champion, being our mighty one, Jesus Christ, the the second Adam, comes to reclaim what the first Adam forfeited in the garden. And so Jesus Christ comes and he takes all of the brutality of sin, death, hell, and judgment upon himself. Not only from the human realm, but from the satanic realm. All of it compiled upon Jesus. And he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And so he is our representative, took our punishment. He is our representative, died our death. He is our champion, rose from the grave. He is our champion ascended to the throne he is our champion is coming again and brothers and sisters he represents you you have him now and so this word mighty one I, I, what I'm going to say Jeff what is your goal here man you're yelling a lot you're spitting a little bit you're really sweaty we need to check your blood pressure thank you for your concern but here he's, he's saying this stop thinking of me as out there with all this power, grace, mercy, and strength, and start realizing, I'm right here with you. I'm in the midst. I'm like right here with you. He's your champion. You're already a winner. I'm sorry if that offends you. I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you're a winner. (laughs) I really don't want to mess your day up, but you're an overcomer. You know, I don't want to pull the carpet out from under your feet, but you're more than a conqueror. That's just our Bible. Why? Because your champion lives within you. He's the mighty one. Rest for God is your rescuer. Again, in the Old Testament, multiple times. This word's used over 150 times in the Old Testament, and it is often referring to people, so we can see how God refers, it, refers to people using this word. We have a better understanding when he shows it to be himself. He says, I'm the mighty one, and all over the Old Testament, you have these people coming and rescuing. There's, there's grace on this right now. Some of you are, feel like you are like five inches away from the bottom falling out and not, not being able to bounce back. And I'm going to tell you something. I have been there. I used to have a house at that place. I, I just lived there for so long. And it was amazing to me because I begged one season for well over two years that I just stayed on this place where I felt like at any given moment life could fall out from under me. It was, it was actually scary. Um, I was being purified. I was being tested by the Lord. I was being um, proven in some aspect. But in in my own self, it was actually very scary. And he left me there because I prayed, Lord, I think I've learned the lesson now. Put all this away and I don't want to do this anymore. Thank you. I wake up the next day and I'm still there. Oh, Lord, maybe you didn't hear me yesterday. But what I was saying was that I'm done with this. I don't want to do this anymore. So today will be a great day. Thank you. You know, praying in faith, just claiming it, amen. I, then you get more bold. Lord, I declare in the heaven of heavenlies, I declare in the name of Jesus that this is the last day, amen. I will not be here tomorrow, amen. And the sun comes up and the Lord looks at me and says, good morning. <laughs> now I'm being a little, a little silly with that, but that's the way it felt to me. And then eventually I just got to the place where I said, Lord, you're leaving me here. And as long as you're here with me, I commit to be okay with that. And he left me there at least another year during that time. It took six months months to break me and another year and a half for that deliverance to come. But I really did learn that the Lord in the midst of me was mighty. And I learned that, and by the way, the rescue did come and it came big time. And without going into details, I, I, I literally remember mine was in a realm of human opposition and constant, um, affliction in, in relationships in the kingdom. And I, I'll never forget in a very short window of time, the primary aggressors, this goes back years ago, by the way, so please don't attribute it to recent history. But I just remember watching my aggressors. They came one way and they were sent off seven ways. They'd just gone. And I knew, oh, he actually does rescue. Sometimes he doesn't rescue quickly, but he does rescue. And so if you're in that place today, I've been there, and I just say to you, 
Your father has not forgotten about you. He's not dropped it. He's not going to leave you rescueless. He will come. And so the very last things, I'm just going to go down to my final point. Matter of fact, I'm just going all the way to the final point. If you guys are doing the notes up there, let's just go down to I am your thrill. He's your rescue. He's your rest. He's your companion. He's your God. And I really want this for us, church. I want, I want you to be thrilled with God. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I'm just going to read it again. Maybe just close your eyes and just listen. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Yahweh will quiet you by his love. Yahweh will exult over you with loud singing. The Father rejoices over you with gladness. The Father quiets you with his love. The Father will exult over you with loud singing. This is, um, this is really the passage for me. And you, some of you are just blessed. My wife receives this so much more easily than I do. She's a product of a healthy relationship with her own dad growing up and she never, ever doubted her daddy's love for her. And it's just amazing how pivotal it is for, for fathers to represent the father well. But, but let's just be realistic. Um, a lot of us didn't have that. And a lot of us as dads haven't done the best job with our kids. Now, there's grace for all of it, okay? But even the best father in the world training up his son or daughter in the faith. Most of even those brilliantly wonderful dads don't leave it easy for their kids to picture God doing what he just said he does over his children. I want you to understand, I'm not even going to do my notes here. I just want to share it and then I'll call the worship team up. This holy, unapproachable God. Listen, the first time God has ever called holy in Scripture is in the book of Exodus when Moses tries to approach him in the burning bush and God says, uh-uh, take off your sandals, I'm holy. The first time you ever see God call himself holy is when man tries to approach him on his own terms. And so this holy, inaccessible God in our own strength, inaccessible so works grace and love and tenderness towards us on our behalf at his expense. He never complains about it. He's, it's not begrudgingly. He's not caught up in some system that he wants to get out of. He is in absolute love with his children. You say, Jeff, why? Well, because he's God. That's really the only answer. It's not because we earned it. It's not because we deserved it. We sang that this morning. It's just because he's God and he says, I love you. I love you, I love you. And we're tempted to say, yeah, but what about, and man, who doesn't have a long list? I mean, we all have a long list of reasons why we don't always consider ourselves lovable, especially by this holy, glorious, self-contained God whose name is Yahweh. But he doesn't just say he loves us. He says, I'm the Lord your God, I'm in the midst of you, I'm a mighty one, signifying how strong he is on our behalf. And he says this, he says, I'm going to rejoice over you with gladness. Now, it's not that he's going to start doing that. It's that he's already doing that. When he looks at you as his child, I don't know if you can see this, but you can if you will exercise faith because you're just taking him at his word. He says that his remnant, his children, he rejoices over them. And then he adds another layer. I mean, rejoicing over us is kind of staggering in and of itself, but he rejoices over us with gladness. It's like having a jelly and jelly sandwich. I mean, it's just, it's two layers of the same good thing. So what are you going to eat for lunch? I'll have a jelly jam sandwich. It's, t- it's kind of the same thing, but it's two different attributes. And the Lord's saying, I-, I-, I rejoice over you with joy. I rejoice over you with gladness. Now just stop a minute. I'm going to get very real with you. How many of you live with the conception that God is always smiling on you? Very few of us do. 
Because we are more equipped and more trained to believe in what's wrong with us than what's right about him. We, we are bent towards believing the accusations of our flesh and the enemy more so than we are trained to take God at his infallible word. And when he says, I actually rejoice over you, child. I love you. Oh, I don't love everything that you do, but what you do is not who you are. I love you, and I just rejoice over you with gladness. It, it's hard to receive, isn't it? But, but, but I'm going to have to just be pastoral with you. You need to start receiving that or your life's going to be jacked up. Amen. The best you'll do is kind of skim the very cream. The, it's a thin layer of cream that religion offers. It's sweet, but it turns sour real quick. And you have to keep going back for more and more if you believe that, well, he, he, he tolerates me because he's got to because he gave that new covenant thing and I believed in Jesus. So he's got to let me into his presence. That's not the heart of a father. I mean, he ripped the veil as a visible demonstration of one. It's just one thing. It's an invitation. He says, come near. Get in here is what he's saying. Come on. Come on. You know, I, the first baby I ever held was my daughter. I was awkward with babies and uh, never wanted to drop one. And just always thought I'd drop the baby. And so I didn't ever hold one until I needed to. It was my, my, my daughter. But I just remember holding her there in those early days, and she was a mess at both ends. I mean, she was just, there was nothing from herself intentionally was seeking to be a blessing to me. But I couldn't help rejoicing over her. I'll never forget Amy with Landon. Landon has some dire physical attack on him when he was just months old. He almost died two times. And, um, but I remember Amy rocking Landon in one of those gliders in our house in Lawrenceville at the time. And she would just be singing to him. And all that kid was doing at that time was demanding food, filling diapers, and crying us awake at night. That's all he was doing. He didn't add anything. But that mama's heart, and she would just sing to him and sing to him, and sing to him, and we'd both get together, a mama's heart and a daddy's heart, and we'd look at Alicia, and we'd look at Landon, and, and nobody told us how to love them. You just couldn't help it. I'm going to tell you something. At the risk of coming full frontal assault against your religion, I'm going to tell you that is the way the Father feels about you, whether you like it or not. He loves you like that, and it is his joy to rejoice over you, but it gets a little better. So, Jeff, when are you going to get done? I'm almost out of words, so here we go. <laughs> says he'll quiet you by his love. He'll quiet you by his love. There's some, some different opinions on what exactly that means, but it means one of two things. Some Hebrew scholars, and your Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew, and some Hebrew scholars tell you that this is what that means, that it actually is better interpreted. He gets quiet in his love. And they paint the picture of God being exceedingly rejoicing and delighting over you as a child, and then he gets very quiet with you, that he literally just allows that love for you to move inside of him, and he's not expressing it in that moment. It may very well mean that. I personally lean towards that, looking at the Hebrew there and having some very smart people help me decipher what that means. But the other part is simply the way it's rendered in, in the English Bibles, that he actually breeds quietness in you as you are connecting with his love. That he quiets your spirit, not through rules, not through mandates, not through try-harders, not, not through shame, not through lacerating, you know, coming at you for all you've done wrong, but he quiets you by his love. Worship team, come on up. And then there it is. It's the last phrase. It says he will exult over you. That's the English Standard Version. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, I'm just going to wreck you right here. Father God, in, over you, because he chose to, 
That word exalt doesn't mean anything to me. I don't use that word. I get frustrated with English translations sometimes because I know it's a good word, but we don't use that. So my, my inquiring mind wants to know, and so I just look it up. What does that mean in the Hebrew? What's the Hebrew word, what it means? It indicates a spinning around, a dancing, and a celebration of joy. It means God describes himself in such a way that if he had a body and you could see him, he would look at you. Just picture yourself standing there and you're coming before him and you're thinking maybe there's five things wrong with you that day or 15 or 500. And you're coming and you're not so certain, but you're coming in faith and you're pressing through all that's messed up in your life. And you're believing that he's in the midst of you, but you're still not sensing it. And then your eye begins to behold movement out in front of you. And you know the Father's doing something as you. You get closer and the, the darkness evaporates and the mist dissipates. And you're, you're moving into the presence of the Father. And you, now the movement takes on definition. And he's spinning around. He's spinning around. He's spinning around. He's jumping. He's waving his arms. He's exulting. He's rejoicing. He's dancing. He's moving. And he's doing it because he loves you. And then for the mind to receive that God could ever feel that way about us is staggering. I wouldn't believe it if somebody else told it to me. But he said it. He said it. He said, I delight in you. When you connect with that reality in your life, I will make you promises. Shackles will fall off. Addictions will be broken. Purpose will find you. Joy will return to you. Fear won't be in here anymore. It might be out there, but it won't dominate you anymore. No longer a slave to fear. Why? Because you know you're a child of God. And that it's not some God up there who was like maybe some of our earthly fathers. I have a great relationship with my dad, so please don't read into this. But some earthly fathers, just their natural countenance is scowling, frowning. They have a no face. Everything's no. And so by faith, we press in and we say, it doesn't matter about my history. It doesn't matter about my present moment struggle. It doesn't matter about my fears over the future. I've pressed through the darkness and I've come into the presence of the Father. And instead of a clipboard filled with all the checklist of rules I broke, there's nothing in his hands, but his hands are open and they're actually moving and he's twirling and he's dancing. And when I look at his face, he's actually smiling. And I look around, I'm assuming he's smiling at somebody else, but I realize there's nobody else there but me. And he says, this, no child, you. I love you. I delight in you. I really, really like you. I'm your father. And if you will fixate on me and trust me, and you'll believe what I say more than what you feel, then you and I are going to experience some things together at this point forward that you've never known in the past. That's the father's deliberate delight in you. Let's stand to our feet.